Can I say bollocks? I, say <laughs> I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. I'm really rich. I'll show you that in a second. I would get along with Putin. I've dealt with Russia. I like China. I just sold an apartment for $15 million to somebody from China. Something is wrong here. Dead yeah, giveaway. Yeah. I declare bankruptcy! No! No! Jets from Gladiators to host a Millennium Barn Dance. I know, I know. It is completely ridiculous. Welcome back to another episode of Ableton Cast, where this week my guest is Joe Clegg, who is ridiculously amazing. So stay tuned. Okay, welcome back to Ableton Cast. Today I've got an amazing guest. It's taken some time, but it's been worth the wait. I've got Mr. Joe Clegg. And Joe, I think he does many, many things. What I know of Joe is he plays drums and MDs with Ellie Golding and Clean Bandit as well. Joe, what else do we need to know about you? I mean, that's kind of what I do. I, I work with a bunch of other people as well, like Mumford and & Sons and Sigrid. Um, yeah, into vintage gear. I run a little studio up in Lancashire. That's about it, really. Oh. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for giving me a bit of your time. Joe is such a busy guy, and he just told me he's off to Tokyo tomorrow, and he hasn't washed his clothes yet, so I really <laughs> appreciate your time. Uh, the life of a Tory musician. Yeah, great. Okay, well, we'll get started. So first, first uh, simple question is, um, how did you get started with Ableton? Uh, good question. Well, I got started with Ableton maybe 15 years ago. Um, oh, it makes me feel old. When I was living in Bristol and in a band, they introduced me to, I guess, the concept of programming. And Ableton Live was kind of just coming out, and they were really into it. And so, on riding that wave when it first came out, and it was a really exciting time. And yeah, I learned how to. I guess the starting point was backing tracks and yeah, things for live shows. We were sampling some bits. Um, and running clicks. So it's very kind of basic. Um, and a lot of the, the work was done, the heavy lifting was done by the guys because I was sort of brand new to it. Yeah, sure. And and that was it really. I guess I, I, I got into Ableton at the time that I was touring. So it had a, a direct applicable, um, like a correlation to, to what I was doing. So it was a good way of learning. Yeah. So do you use Ableton, I guess, I mean, I know that you use it in the live situation. Do you use it in the studio as well? Do you know I have? I've started. I've started to open Ableton now before I open anything else. I used to use Logic um, yeah. all the time, and I love just I love the layout of it. Um, and when I started with Ellie, Logic really was my main thing that I used. Um, and a couple of years ago, I started working with this band called Clean Bandit, and they do everything in Ableton. They write, produce everything in Ableton, and. I kind of needed to up my game a little bit and learn some more Ableton chops and just kind of commit to that for a while. And I just really liked it. I really liked how immediate it was and how creative it was and how quick it was to start playing with ideas. Yeah. Um, 
and then I did a couple of tracking sessions on it at my studio and sort of learning how that it responded in that setting. And I, last week I did, no, week before last, I did a session at my studio for Ellie for the new record, um, which I'm not sure if they'll use what I sent them, but I did that all in Ableton as well. Um, yeah, I think it's just becoming my go-to thing. Yeah, I use Logic as well, and I use Ableton. Uh, but for me, for some reason, if I need to do something quickly, I always go to Ableton because I just find it loads up really quickly, and it's just uh, it just seems like it's just really quick, really light, and it's just easy to get your ideas down like really quickly. So. Yeah, totally. And what I like about Logic is that the file system is really good. The way it organizes your content in folders, it's easy to act, uh, to get to. So when I go back to my Ellie hard drives, my backup drives of nearly nine years of working with her, I've got this beautifully labeled system of all songs and edits and versions, and it's all in Logic. Um, so moving over to Ableton going forward for me, Ellie will be quite a big thing. So I think I might stick with Logic for now in that sense. But uh, yeah, same as you. It's just easy and quick, isn't it? It's easy to start with an idea, easy to find out where that could go in Ableton. Yeah. So I have tried to do my homework, and I, <laughs> and, and I know that with, with Ellie that you do use Ableton in the live situation, I believe. Yeah. And I think you use a Roland SPDS to control it. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so one one simple question I'd like to start with is, have you ever had it go wrong? Have you ever had any train wrecks where it, it maybe crashed sort of halfway through a song or have you yeah. had anything? And what have you done to sort of try and get, get around it? Yeah, we had, um, we've had some train wrecks for sure. Um, I guess we started using Ableton on Ellie maybe five years ago. Yeah. Um, when a guy called Cy Francis, I think you might know Simon. Yes, I had him on the show. He's great. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a really great friend of mine. When he came on, because he was just a savant at programming, and I made the sort of the, the step to go to Ableton at that point. And over the years of slower laptops and earlier versions of Ableton, yeah, we've encountered some some issues, but also. We've always been asking a lot of Ableton and sending a lot of MIDI traffic from stage. So the other problems we've encountered mainly have been human error. Um, yeah. I remember we had, I mean, it's, it's a horror story. I'll tell you anyway. We, we in the US, they do like a series of Christmas radio shows. So like, like the Winter Ball? Or exact, exactly that, yeah. yeah. Um, jingle Ball, is it? Jing, the Jingle Bell Ball, yeah. yeah. I guess it's the equivalent of like the capital summertime ball in the UK. Anyway, we flew out with Ellie to do three songs at this arena live show or live on radio. I can't remember where it was, like Minneapolis or somewhere. And yeah, three songs, full band and crew flown out just for this. And the last of the three songs was at that time, the big breakthrough single failure in the US called Lights. Yeah. And it had a minute intro on it and we were playing and then about a minute in, as soon as I hit my, um, at that time I was in the KD7, this Roland uh, based on like trigger pad. The first time I hit that, it sent a stop message. And that stop message went to both A and B systems and stopped the show. Um, 
Yeah, which was that's that's horrific. And we were a minute in as well. So you can't exactly start that intro again. Yeah. And we we're only only there for three songs. So what was it supposed to do when you hit that pad? It was just it was just to play meant to be receiving a, the MIDI note that that pad was assigned to. Yeah. Um into a drum rack and it was just meant to be playing a sample. That's the only job it had. Oh wow. For whatever reason it spat out some erroneous MIDI messages across all channels and and stopped everything. Um, which which was was a deal breaker. It was a it was a showstopper. We got around it because we got Ellie an acoustic guitar and she just sang the song with acoustic guitar, um, which turned out to be a really cool moment and kind of say kind of saved it. But off the back of that, we came back to the UK and I had to answer some questions of like how did that happen. Yeah. Do we know what the problem was? Can we repeat it? Therefore, can we sort of remove that from that bug from the system? And um, yeah, it began the process of us being really, really pedantic about MIDI mapping and things like the start and stops not necessarily all coming from the um, affecting all the systems. Yeah, it, it was a that was. Oh man, it's horrific even telling a story. But yeah, that happened. Since so then, did you get to the end? Did you get to the bottom of that? We didn't get to the bottom of why why the messages were sent. I think it was just um, the the pad just kind of died and spat out some messages. But what we hadn't at that time, our stop command on all laptops was armed on all laptops. Um, so we decided, okay, well, on the B system, we should remove the stop command so that yeah. when, whenever I press stop, the switcher will t- will kick in and the rig will still run. Um, and for whatever reason, we had I mean, we must have thought about it, but we hadn't apl- uh, applied it. Yeah. So that was a really straightforward thing we could do to fix it off the back of it. Um, and we started to switch out our controllers more regularly rather than just running them for full campaign uh, to avoid them just dying and also, sort of mitigating, like filtering how how, how many MIDI signals, sorry, what um, pad sends signals to what system, so that the keys rig wasn't seeing the same stop, for instance. Um, it becomes like a really complex thing, doesn't it, when you, you're sending so many MIDI channels um, and a high volume of MIDI data from stage, all basically being merged and going through to a couple of laptops. It's quite a lot of traffic. Um, so yeah, we learned off the back of that. Let's just be, let's be really um, careful about how we do this, and sort of minimise any possible uh, weakness in the system. And over the course of the years, we've ironed that out, and we we've had no problems in on playback world in a good few years. It just works. I mean, on the a couple of years ago, I think it was yeah, twenty sixteen, we did Ellie's World or Intour. And we moved all the keyboard world into Ableton. It wasn't main stage before that. Yeah. On a on a separate laptop system, and we encountered we moved, and we encountered um, CPU problems before we moved it over to Ableton uh, because we were using on stage, I guess, four five uh, mini keys controllers, perhaps three playing at a time, and moving over to Ableton, we rather than going on MacBook Pros, we bought some Mac Pro towers. And that gave us way much, way more headroom, yeah. and kind, of, and kind of stopped our CPU problems. We get get some spikes here and there now and again, but they're intermittent. And um, I mean, 
the the difference in technology from when we started using Ableton on LE five years ago yeah, to it's now really improved. It's nuts. It really has. It's noticeable. Yeah, I use Mainstage as well, and I know like it just seems. I mean, I do love it, but I do think it just seems a lot heavier. Both Logic. And main stage seem heavier than Ableton. Ableton just seems lighter in every sense. So, yeah, of course. I mean, you need to manage your CPU, whatever you're doing, whether like on the keys side of things, rather than just using having um, like a contact library open and that changing per song. You know, we've learned. I mean, Simon was sort of the instigator in this. And just making sure things were turned on and off and that we were using as little um, as little CPU as possible. So minimizing, like resampling things into contact patches, which were just the sounds and the ranges that were needed. I mean, yeah. it's been a... We, we got into the depths of it, of of how can we make this as streamlined as possible? And, and we're still we're still on that quest. And with every Ableton update, there's a new thing to check, isn't there? There's a new thing to iron out. Yeah. Um, so from from one of your videos, I'm not sure if if this is still your setup. And if it is, I'll, I'll post the link uh, to that video. It was one that you did with uh, Roland, and they were kind of going through your gear. But it looked like you had um, you didn't have a laptop on on stage, but you had a screen. Um, hooked up near your drums so you could see Ableton. Yeah. Is that still the case? And if so, I, I wondered how does that get hooked up? Because I'm assuming that, you know, your your Mac Pro towers are probably quite far away from, from you. Yeah, that, that is still the case. I mean, it's changed a little bit, but from that Roland video, it's, it's kind of the same thing. Um, yeah, the screen is just like a HDMI out of, on the playback world, it's just uh, MacBook Pros. On, on the keyboard, keyboard world, it's Mac Pros. So on the second, the B-Rig, um, for playback, the MacBook Pro, we're running the HDMI cable out, um, which is, I think it's converted to VGA, I think, and then that's just sent down a multi to stage. Um, and then sort of turn back into HDMI into the screen. And that is just, for years, I've had a laptop by the, the drum kit, yeah, and watching Ableton when we moved to all our gear off stage, I kind of wasn't ready to let go of that. Yeah. But only because I'm responsible for starting and stopping everything, so I'm I'm in control. We've got an amazing playback guy, a guy called Will Sanderson, who is incredible. But during the show, he's just watching the systems. Yeah, um, it's me starting and stopping and controlling and changing songs. So I wanted to be able to have some kind of visual feedback. So the screen was a good way of doing that. Yeah, for sure. So that lets you kind of know exactly where you are. And I'm assuming you use it in session session view? Yeah, we do. Well, we have done. Um, I kind of have exclusively used session view for live shows for years for a couple of reasons. One, because it's just really clean when you're looking at the screen. It's very clean, to easy to navigate. Um especially when you have a lot of songs in there, but also because you can see the meters at the bottom, the output meters quite clearly. Yeah. But now with Clean Bandit, they run all their show in a range mode, and I've kind of been won over to the perks, the pros of running it that way, um, especially for things that with tempo map things. 
there are lots of reasons why a range is also a really good way of running your show as well. Yeah. It'd be a little, little bit different way of starting and stopping songs uh, than I currently do, like using markers, but that's that's completely doable. Oh, wow. That's very cool. Um, this is one I was I was interested in, and I'm not sure if it's something that you deal with, but... You know, just on the instrument side, I wondered, you know, as you don't really have any laptops, laptops on stage, everything's off stage, how are you running, you know, sort of all your, all, all the cables to that? So what I mean is, like, how are you running, like, USB or, like, the MIDI five-pin cables to that so that they get backstage and then to Ableton and then back? Yeah, well, we use MIDI... Uh, Din, five pin din for everything. Yeah, um, and we had we had some custom stage boxes made with multiple MIDI inputs into it and a merge built inside it. Right, and that that merge box then converts a signal to Ethernet to Cat five. Yeah, and then we run a single Cat five loom from each position. So there are four positions on stage, and effectively there are four cables which join and merge into one loom uh, that run to playback world, then separate out again. Quite tidy, actually. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I, I really love the idea of trying to get all laptops off stage as well. It just looks it looks really cool, and I just think it's a really sleek look. Yeah, it's clean, it's sleek. I guess it's a good way of saying it. But it all depends on what you're doing and the genre and... Um, yeah, I don't mind a laptop being on stage. I like to. That's the whole thing of if you if the thing's on track, then some like me as a musician, I would rather see the visual. Oh, there's a laptop that must be doing something, yeah. rather than just just being hitting on this under a stage. Yeah. But then when you get into the world of stage design uh, and production, then it's nice and neat when you've got those things off stage for sure. I wondered what sort of preparation do you have to do? You know, with Ableton leading up to a gig or a tour, I guess, right at the, right at the beginning, really, you know, because once you're into the tour, it's usually fine. But just leading up to that, I wondered sort of what kind of preparation do you have to do? Yeah, um, a lot. <laughs> yeah. A lot of preparation. I guess that stem goes back to like, the, the very beginnings of working on a new song or working on a new arrangement or imagining a song in context of a show. So I usually, so I use logic. Like I said, I use logic quite a lot for arrangement things, and only recently moved over to Ableton for that as well. So a lot of my work in terms of deciding what parts are played live and if there's going to be anything on track, what that is, and how that's EQ'd, how that's approached um, from stems, all happens there, and I run that from a laptop during a rehearsal. And from there, I would be bouncing out stems for Playback World. So like, I like my audio, when it goes into Ableton, to be final mixed audio, um, rather than making any changes within the box. That's kind of my, my starting point. So from a static audio thing, that's kind of how I would approach it. But then all my drum samples are hosted within instrument racks uh, which contain drum racks per song. And that's a little bit trickier because obviously bouncing out the sample from your stems is one thing, but hearing them in context and being able to EQ them and have control of them and then the world of automation, automating what does what when, yeah. um, 
that takes a lot of time. And so what I would do before a rehearsal session when working on tracks is I would do, I would set up the song template in the session. I would create my instances of drum racks for those songs, things like tempo maps, whatever, if they're required, and like do a sketch of here are the samples I think I'm going to use and then sketch some automation, how that needs to be um, affected over the course of the song. And that'd be my starting point. So when I bounce my audio from Logic for my playback, I drop it straight into instance of that song in session view and I'm pretty much good to go. And from there, it's a case of refining. And that's a lot easier to do when you're in that situation. Yeah. So do you, when you're, when it comes to samples, are you using the Roland SPDS for the samples or is that only for Ableton and are you using other drum pads for the samples? Yeah, so I use the SPDSX, it's just a MIDI controller. Um, so no analog outputs, no sound is being um, sent as analog signal out of that. Sure. Um, which means that's going straight into Ableton and my, when I hit a pad, that is playing a note in a sample in my drum racks in Ableton. Um, I've stopped using the the pads themselves on the SPDS just because I wanted to position them around the kit in other places and because the SPDS surface is quite small. Yeah. On a dark stage, it can get quite complicated. Yeah. So sure. I, I use um, a pad called the PD8 by Roland. It's like an eight inch black rubber pad, which is super reliable. Um, yeah, I've got one, two, three, four, five of those. And then a, like a bass drum trigger pedal as well, like a KT 10 and then some triggers. So I, I must have 10 trigger surfaces of some types on stage. Yeah. And they, they have, um, a special place in the multi. So they effectively have a loom for those 10 sources as TRS jacks. And they go into a loom, which goes to side of stage, and they go into a rack, which has two of these um, audio to MIDI uh, converters by Roland called the TMC6. Okay. Which they don't make anymore. So, like, I have a stockpile of them. And whenever I see them on eBay, like, I've got an alert on eBay that whenever one comes up, I get an email. Um, because the things are so flipping good and they're rock solid, the latency is as low as you're probably going to get. It's like three three point something seconds, milli, um, three point what is it? Let's say three point five milliseconds of latency, and um, yeah, they're like built like tanks. So I have two of those, and that takes my audio signal, the impulse from the pad, uh, converts that to MIDI, and that hits the drum racks. Oh, that's wicked! So that's a really long answer. That's okay. <laughs> that's great. It's, <laughs> it's really nice to hear hear how you guys do it. That's really cool. Are there any rookie mistakes that people usually make in Ableton that you think we should be aware of? Obviously, most people listening, they're not going to be at the level that you're at. They're going to be a lot of people are going to be just kind of starting out or they've been using it for a bit. So, can you think of any like kind of like kind of like simple sort of schoolboy errors that we should kind of watch out for? Yeah, I mean, I want I think there are, there are so many different ways of using something like Ableton in the context of a live show, there's almost like there aren't any rules in a way. I've seen it being used in lots of different ways. Um, so I think there are a bunch of different ways you could do it. The thing that I would, I'd always say something to watch out for is your gain staging. Yeah. Ensuring that you're not 
um, making changes to things on the channels and that your audio, if it's bounced audio or, or your samples are set at source. So your level, let's say that you have a, a backing vocal track that you rather than changing the gain on that channel itself, you just change, change the gain on the, on the WAV um, yeah. direct at source. And the same for your samples as well. Just so that, I guess the, the ideal thing is that you would open up your session and press play and the audio hit in front of house will be unity gain in front of house. And effectively it should be, should be mixed from source. And that's one less thing for your front of house guy to worry about. That's kind of my philosophy. So if you're changing gains and they're all over the place on between your channels and between your, um, your audio, your samples, it just gets super complicated, uh, not complicated, convoluted. Um, it's an important thing to keep an eye on. How many outs are you usually taking from Ableton? You know, are you taking four outs? Are you taking eight or, or more? 12? Yeah, it does. It does change on the, the, the gig, I think, but I don't think you need more than eight. Yeah. Personally, I know I've, I've got a friend who works on a, a really big show here in the UK and they have a hundred, 100 channels coming from Pro Tools. Wow. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's massive. And the gig sounds amazing and they've got a big band. So, you know, I'm not, that is what it is. Like I said before, there's not necessarily just one way of doing this. However, that's a hundred channels of stuff for an engineer to navigate song yeah. by song, cool. which for me seems, seems kind of unnecessary. So yeah. like, for instance, on Ellie, I would run, I do run, um, like a stereo drums left and right. This is track. Then, I would I'd call it melody channels, so like a left yeah. and right of anything melodic. Then BVs, so up to six. I would run a click, seven, and eight for time code. Done. Yeah. Can you just mention um, just about time code? So for anybody who doesn't know what time code is, what what's the kind of simple way of, of well, really explaining that? Um, the simple way... It's a really horrible sounding um, piece of audio that basically contains a lot of ones and zeros that allows control services such as lighting and video um, to be able to interpret where you are in the song. In the and same you way, you have that, one of your lighting guys create the time code. Yeah, again, that depends. I mean, you, there's some interfaces you can generate like print time code for as long as you need it for you could you think there's a free generator online you're able to find but also yeah um lighting or video guys also be able to just give you like a pen drive here are the 15 pieces of audio that we need to put in to send to us for time code um it just allows them to know where they are in their show but also to be able to program things very very precisely yeah and that's just on an audio track enabled. that's right yeah, yeah just an audio track yeah um so that's kind of eight channels of basically I would call playback. I think that any more than that, I think is correct. Well, I think it's a luxury to have anything more than that. There aren't many things that I work on where we have more than that because I don't think it's needed. But then I guess for L, you would add like drums wise, what I'm sending, I'm sending a kick, I'm sending a snare, there's mono channels, then like, a, like a stereo left and right drums channel. So that's four channels of drums. That's all the sample things that I'm playing. Yeah. Then we have in Keys World, we have probably another eight. We have maybe less. There are at least four channels of like two stereo pairs of keys. There's a, a mono bass, five. 
Maybe there's a oh, there's a sampler stereo six seven. We'll run it up to eight. So really, channel count wise, it's not not crazy. So you also MD, and that's something I wondered um, again if you can kind of explain what an MD is for people who might not know what that is. Yeah, well, um, I guess it stands for musical director, um, music director if you're American. Um, what does it really mean? I, do you know what? I don't really know these days. When I started out, I guess when I first met Ellie, I didn't know what an MD really did. And it wasn't something that I'd pursued as a career choice. Um, but I was asked to be the MD of Ellie because I understood technology and because I was able to sample things out and run an SPDS and run Ableton. Um, so my interpretation of that at the time was, well, I'm just kind of a life, I'm a producer. Yeah. I'm produ- producing music. And over the years, I've had, I've had to wear different hats. I've had to experience scoring string parts and working with an orchestra and all the things you expect a musical director to do. But predominantly, now, I'm, my work really just is involved in mixing and working with a front of house engineer and being creative about musically what we do um, with the talent, technology that we have. So I, I would really say it's, it's production, it's music production. Yeah. And are you doing anything, you know, when you guys are playing live? Some MDs have a mic and they can actually be talking to the band whilst they're yeah. playing? Is that yeah, something that you do? And if so, what are some things that you might be saying to the band? Usually really bad jokes. <laughs> no, I, I think that being on stage and being the MD, I guess the, the responsibility of if something goes wrong, there needs to be somebody in the moment on stage that can assess and try and solve that problem. Um, and it would make sense for the person that's involved in all the arrangements and has done all the programming to be that person. So yeah, I've got a microphone on stage with Ellie and I have a foot switch and that foot switch basically, if I don't press the button, everybody can hear me, including Ellie. And if I press the button, everybody can hear me except for Ellie. Okay. And that gives me the option of if something's going wrong and I'm talking to my monitor guy side of stage, sometimes that's distracting for Ellie. She doesn't need to hear that. She doesn't yeah. need to know that there's a problem. We can solve that without her knowing. But then if I need to talk to her, for instance, if there's something new in the set or if there's a reactionary moment where she needs to leave the stage or we need to fix something and she needs to f- fill a gap by talking while we fix, then that's I have control being able to speak to her. Yeah. Um, all the guys on stage have talk by mics as well. So ev- every position will have a talk by mic, including Ellie. And that would be mainly used for, I guess, if there's a problem locally for them, but mainly for monitor mixes. That's nice. So everybody has one. Somewhere. Yeah. So yeah. would, would Ellie's be like, would hers be sort of like off to the side of the stage or where would hers be? Her... It, would, it would kind of be up against my riser or okay, um, yeah. depending on the configuration of, of the band, Simon was usually in the middle to so kind of just downstage um, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of, out, you, you won't see it really unless she walks over to it and then you recognize she's talking to another microphone. Pretty subtle. Yeah, yeah, sure. So as we've already kind of established, you know, you play with some really big artists and just wondered if you had any tips for, you know, people who would obviously love to play at that level, but, you know, currently aren't. What do you think are some 
What's what's some good advice for people who would love to do what you're doing? Uh, well, I, I would say first and foremost to to learn technology to sort of commit yourself to being somebody that un, that knows Ableton, but is also able to grow and adapt to new technologies. I think I say that to a lot of people actually when they ask me how how do I get your job and how to do what you do and I will. I can only tell you from my experience, and my experience was that I kind of had a very basic understanding of how Ableton works, but I had loads of ideas, and the ideas were, well, I think the show could be like this, and I think the drums could sound like this, and I spent the time and learned and made some mistakes, but I, I committed myself to knowing how to do that, and that has carried me for the last decade, and now I get called to go and help people put their shows together, which is a pretty amazing and surreal thing yeah. so techno technology is is the big one obviously being good at your instrument of course but if you can program that and you know how to run tracks and you know how to you know how midi works you know how to automate things suddenly you're increasing your opportunities you're of being hired for something so that's kind of what i would say um I, the other big thing is like to be tenacious and to not give up yeah, I didn't. I didn't really. I didn't get my break with Ellie until I was twenty-five. Yeah, sure. And I know guys now who are eighteen, nineteen, twenty who are remarkable players, doing worldwide gigs. You know, um, for some people it happens, it happens younger. It happens later. I. It was quite a journey for me going from studying music when I was six, uh, you know, seventeen, eighteen, um, all the way through to being twenty-five and getting the Ellie call. I was ready for it because I'd done a lot of miles on the road, did a lot of shows and learned a lot of valuable lessons. It, if I'd given up, then I probably wouldn't have got that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's sort of, it's always easy to kind of like look back, look back now and and see and see like, and see the path, the trajectory that it's, you know, that got you from there to there but sometimes when you're the person who's actually like struggling and you feel like you're sort of hitting your head against the wall it can feel like you know just the easy thing to do is to just give up but I've heard so many great stories from people like you of you know that one of the main things is that they just didn't give up you know they were persistent about everything and that got them to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing so it's really encouraging. That's that's it, isn't it? I mean, if you're passionate about something and you want to do it, I mean, I've never had a plan B in a way. It, I've just pursued my passion and been relentless with that. And I've been really fortunate and I've had to work hard for it and I've got something, a lot of things wrong. Um, but I stuck at it. And I think that's kind of like one of the biggest pieces of advice that I could give is just to stick at it. And I think it's really nice to know that like people who are now doing bigger gigs, like they encounter those difficult situations as well. Cause it's sometimes easy to just see the person who's up there doing the big gig and just thinking, Oh, well they must've just had an easy ride and you know, it must've been like easy for them. And that must've just fallen into their lap just out of the sky. Yeah, I mean, I don't know many people that that has happened to. Yeah, exactly. Well, I it, could it doesn't really. No, I mean, I know a few, but the, the large majority of people that are working in music today don't have that story. It's all, well, you know, I worked hard and I, I sacrificed things for it and I pursued it and here we are. But also, interestingly, something that I've learned is that 
just because you get an opportunity and and it's, it's perceived as a big one doesn't mean that that's you sorted. That doesn't mean that you're always yeah. going to get called. Now, I've been very fortunate for the last three, four years to be outside of Ellie's campaign to go straight into other musical director jobs, um, like Clean Bandit, for instance, and yeah. and other like years and years before that, and some really great, great pop projects. But then beginning of this year, 2018, I had three months of nothing. I mean, I had a two-week trip, uh, which was an awesome one. I went to Norway and worked with uh, this girl called Sigrid, mm. who was just one of my favorites. Um, and then with another girl called Aurora, who's incredible. But that was it, work-wise, in three months. And that's not because I didn't, well, I wasn't looking for work. It's just yeah. the way it's just the way it turned out. Now, three months without work for anybody is is enough time for it to be like, oh man, am I going to get a call again? Is is there a problem? Yeah. Do you it have any it. tips, sort of, you know, just on, on the practical side, like on on the money side? of things, you know, for a self-employed musician, you can't always guarantee work. So even somebody like you who's doing really big things, at times you can go through like a point like that. So do you have any any tips on just how to like, you know, just really basically, you know, how to kind of like, you know, manage money? Yeah, I do. And that's just from experience. And that is not to spend it all. It sounds really, it sounds <laughs> yeah. stupid. I mean, I love gear and I own lots of drum kits and now mad into studio world and I've been buying equipment and it's an investment, but it's also spending money and it's really important a to pay your taxes, but b to ensure that you've got enough money to save you to pay your mortgage. Um, a couple of years ago, I shifted all my work. I, I formed a company and I shifted all my music work into my company and that allowed me to, explore better pension deals and insurance policies, which were better for the company, which, you know, grown up things. Yeah. Sure. And, and th those grown up things are really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I was never given that advice when I first started out. Um, I made sure that I paid my tax bills. No, I but mean, all we think about when we're younger is that we love music and that somehow if we love music and get to play music, then we'll, will be sorted and happy and won't have to worry about anything else in the world. Well, absolutely. And at some point, if you're fortunate and work hard, that'll go from just being your dream of wanting to make music into, oh, wait a minute, this is, oh, this is a career. And suddenly I'm a decade into it and, yeah, this is what I do. And then with that becomes the reality of, well, now I need to be sensible about how I spend that money. So I can endure a quiet period because, again, I know so many people that have gone through quiet spells up oh, you know two three four five six months of quiet spells and these are people who are incredible musicians that are on massive gigs because that's life that just happens yeah um and beginning of this year it was only a few months but it was my first experience of that and it sucked thankfully i had a plan in place to cover it and it, what it meant for me was i got to spend three months making music for myself in my studio which was incredibly rewarding and being at home with my family which is again was seems like a really basic thing where i've spent nearly 10 years just touring the world yeah which, which i love but i love my family too i love my family more yeah, that's sure. that's my priority but because i had to save money and i kind of had a plan in place for that we were able to endure it 
Okay, Joe, I don't want to keep you much longer. Thank you so much for your time. But I just wanted to give you just one last chance, really, just to plug anything that you have going on. Uh, yeah, really, anything. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, the only thing that I think is worth plugging is I'm doing this, um, I think, the charity in November. And it's kind of nuts. I'm cycling 300 kilometers from um, Phnom Penh in Cambodia to Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's for a charity called Hope for Justice um, that are based in the UK but kind of operate all over the world. And they're modern-day abolitionists. They believe in the end of slavery. And it's, they're amazing, amazing people. And slavery in 2018 looks – it's people working in factories. It's people being trafficked for – also for labor and for sex, it's yeah. it's a massive, massive problem. Anyway, yeah, so I'm doing a thing in November. Um, if you go on my Instagram, which is just instagram.com forward slash collect drums, then you'll see a video on that I did recently. And there's a link there to a, like a giving page where I'm fundraising for it. So, yeah, any any if anybody wants to get involved and support that, that would be amazing. Okay, great. I will put that link in the show notes. So that's re- that you. sounds really cool. Thank you. Well, thank you, Joe. I, I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy, and I want to let you get back to washing your clothes and uh, getting <laughs> no, ready man, for your a, trip to Tokyo tomorrow. Is that right? That's right, yeah, Tokyo. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. But, Joe, have a great night, and hopefully I will get to speak to you again or see you again soon. Yeah, I love that. Cheers, mate. Okay, episode 11, done. Joke like, what a legend. So nice to have him on the show. Don't know about you, but I love hearing about guys who are playing with really big artists and what they do, what they use. Really, really cool. For anybody who wants to connect, you can email me at kevin at abletoncast.com. And I finally, against my own better judgment, set up my Facebook page. So if you want to connect, harass on Facebook, you can. It's Ableton Cast. Do that. Let me know who you want to hear. Let me know if you want to be on the show. Let me know if you have some music that you want me to play in the background. And see you next time.